five, scores! Rick Five. We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Five. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. On to episode 52 of the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs Fan, and joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibes. Squid, how's it going? Things are good. Things are good. I just, uh, uh, looking at that logo, and I just got uh, chocolate squid for Father's Day. So, great big <laughs> chocolate squid for Father's Day. my that? grandson... My grandson's pulling pieces off and feeding them to me. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Well, our guest today was chosen fourth overall by the Quebec Nordiques in the 1992 draft, but never played a game for them. Enjoyed a 15-year pro career, including six with the Leafs, before playing for several different teams along with Canada's national team at the Olympics. Please welcome Todd Warner. Todd, how are we keeping? All good, boys. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, great to have you. I said now... All right. I, a little happy secret Father's here Day tonight. Everybody. Happy Father's Day to everybody today. Yeah, happy Father's Day. Father. Yeah, absolutely. A little secret for everybody out there. When I had the room, which is now in Ottawa, uh, the, I had a leaf locker, and one of the locker I had was owned by Mr. Todd Warner. And uh, we were actually supposed to get together at one point, but our schedules never really worked out. But anyway, you're you're immortalized forever, Todd. You are now actually in the Museum of History in Ottawa, so <laughs> you're a part of it. So you made it on that note anyway. <laughs> There you go, well, Todd. I, I, I know. Hey, we've got to make it somewhere, eh, Squid? Hey, you know what? I saw the pictures. Uh, it's uh, I, I got to get down there and see it, Mike. I want, you know, it's really cool that you have it, and and um, yeah, just another piece of history. I remember walking through the gardens. Oh, about eight months after uh, it closed, and um, I, I'm, try, I'm trying to remember. I watched a documentary, and they were talking about just the state of the gardens. The Ryerson and the supermarket. Yeah. Everybody, I'm sure you saw this. And there were gold seat squid in like the janitor closet, like 40, 40 or so, three or four rows of gold seats in the, in the janitor closet on the left side. There, as you walked in the front doors, of maybe the garden, I thought, well, I'll take a few of those. Nobody wants them, you know. <laughs> so yeah, I'm sure you got a couple of those too, Mike. Well, there's a bunch of stuff thrown out, believe it or not, when guys went there. And I, I actually, a guy called me and he had all those battle letters. There's just been a big story done on it. And I had a whole file of battle letters that he had written to people from when he came out of prison. They were being thrown in the garbage and then all the blueprints from the gardens, they were in a box being thrown out. all kinds. Of, it was just some of the stuff is just absolutely crazy. But anyway, it's a lot of it's in good hands now. Now, Todd, how have you been keeping busy through all of this the last year or so? Well, good. Uh, you guys know I'm a coach with Windsor at the University of Windsor, yeah. so um, we were lucky enough in the in the fall at least to get on the ice a bit in small groups, and so we were doing uh, you know three or four skates a week with the kids that were in town doing their doing their classes, and so yeah, I mean uh, you know I guess like every other you know dad catching up on all the things you should have done when uh, before <laughs> the pandemic, right? Like uh, I, I joke, I built my daughter a treehouse, which you know it's just such a stretch for me. I'm not handy at all. <laughs> and uh, it was last summer. She says to me, "Hey, um, Dad, you know we're looking at this, sizing up this tree in the backyard. Can you, what do you think? Can we put a, a treehouse in there?" So, you know, my dad and I had built a, 
platforms out in his property. He's got 13 acres of woods and we built platforms for a zip line. So we had to get up the tree and we had to anchor these, you know, two by sixes with uh, lag bolts. So I get this idea in my head, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to make this three story structure and all this. Well, I mean, this is probably <laughs> the first couple of days of July last summer and her birthday's the 19th. So I thought, well, I can get it done by a couple of weeks. I can bang this out. Right. Well, it was probably the end of August. <laughs> by the time I finished the tree but like, I probably wasted a thousand dollars worth of wood but I got it done I got it done so it looks really good so then this summer of course you know I got all these woodworking projects I'm trying to get done I just built a, a like a pergola for my deck and uh, I did it out of um, cedar trees so you know dead cedar trees took the chainsaw chopped them up ten and a half feet long put 30 of them across our awning oh. stained them all up sanded them all up so that was a uh, Another month-long job kept me busy. You know, I just stop me just looking for stuff to do at this point, right? So that was one of my other projects. Well, you're. Well, I don't even I don't even attempt those because I have no idea how to do it. My younger brother could build a house on his own. My father, when he was alive, could build a house on his own. I didn't get those those things from 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 my father. I can't. I couldn't build a table. It would be. Warped, leaning one way or another. My dad's thing is squid is, is chopping wood. Like he'll, he'll, you know, my dad's 75 now, right? And he'll call me in the dead of winter. Like, I, actually, I hurt my, I got my finger caught in a, in a wood press this year. So I had to, like, take about a month off. And I got stitches in the whole nine yards. So he'll go out with the chainsaw, dead of winter. He, he loves to get out there and chop, because like, they live in the woods. Yeah. So we'll come back with, you know, a dump truck full of, full of logs and chop them all up and split wood. And so that's been kind of the thing in the winter that uh, kept us busy until I got hurt at least. So yeah, just, you know, I think kids are good, you know, in and out of school and uh, learning online mostly now. My oldest is off to college in, in Ottawa in the fall. So that's uh, that's on our mind at this point too. Well, let's go back to you. So one, gone and, one gone and three to go. One down and three. That's right, yes. <laughs> Well, let's let's talk, let's take you back to where you started off playing your minor career, which was uh, your hometown of Blyham, uh, located near Chatham, Ontario. You also played for Chatham before moving to Major Junior with a few stops before ending up with the Canadian Olympic national team. So the same is a bit of a whirlwind journey for you to start off with would be an understatement. So why don't you take us through that period of your life and how it all kind of got going? Yeah, well, I, you know, I was working at my, I said my mom was, the figure skating coach and uh, dad played uh, you know some senior hockey junior hockey in the area was a good pretty good player himself so we were always around the rink dad coached and mom was uh, you know the head of the figure skating club lovely. so I yeah I played and I was lucky because we had a we had really good coaches I had two guys that played college one was an NHL draft pick who coached me in my hometown growing up and we had you know half a dozen guys that went on to major junior or college yeah. from a little, you know, a B town of 5,000 people. So we, we were lucky. We won some Ontario championships and, and, um, but you know, it, you know, relative to today, it's, it's really so different, you know, I, growing up in us, we had no idea where we, where we were, and then, uh, you know, we're just enjoying it, playing with your buddies. And uh, we didn't realize how well we were coached. We didn't realize how lucky we were, how we were to have the yeah. nice time, get to play up against older, opponents sometimes and you know all those things later on when you look back you think well that was sort of the best uh, possible scenario and getting to you know play for Ontario titles and all those things uh, you know help you later when you're having to deal with all the pressures and things that go into junior and pro hockey so I yeah really lucky um, major junior B kind of on a whim um, 
really on a whim uh, at 15. The coach was a guy named Wayne Jacklin who had coached my dad. And, and that particular year, we had Brian Wiseman on our team. And, and that's a name you may not know. But he, he, set, uh, he beat Ed Olchuk's scoring record that year. Mm-hmm. 140, I think it's 144 or six points in 42 games. And he went on to like, a, oh. you know, a great career. One of the all-time leading scorers at Michigan and played in the, in the minors mostly. I played with him a little bit here in Toronto. Um, uh, 96, 7, he came up for a handful of games. But a uh, small guy, really gifted player. And so I got thrust into that sort of, you know, here's Red Berenson watching us play. Here's, here's Motor City Smith down the road in Windsor watching us play. And we go yep. right to the finals. So it was pretty – I went from – literally no one ever having heard of me in the fall of that year to uh, first rounder in, in March. So that, uh, that was how good a team we were on and the players that were around, we were getting lots of attention too. Right. So. Well, it's funny. Uh, you know, you, you talk about being from a small town and I know I see kids coming from small towns, coming to Toronto, living with other families playing the GTHL and that sort of thing, which, I get it. I mean, you want to get noticed in the biggest places possible. But I the same thing. I, I played in a town of Amherst, Nova Scotia, 8,000 people. And then Charlottetown at that time, you know, might have been about 17, 16, something like that. You know, so and I've always been the firm believer in that if you're good enough, they're going to find you regardless of where you are. Yeah, you, you know, that's I would change my experience good for anything I mean honestly and and you know I you know the year before I played junior B I played a little bit of summer hockey I joked with you guys before about you know the, the only way you knew ever about any of the guys you were kind of up against was when you looked at the hockey news and that was you know monthly on the back page they'd have an OMHA section where you could check on sort of like who mm-hmm. who were the dominant teams mostly out of Toronto that they would write about and and we would learn about the Mike Pekka's and the Chris Prongers of the world of my age group, at least. So, I, so you know, I, had, I knew some names, but, you know, it's not like I was playing them every weekend because I was playing B hockey in a small town. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's different today in some respects because, you know, there's so many, first of all, more players and in and, and more countries. And I think that, you know, if you're not playing AAA by, you know, major band, a minor midget, it's, it's difficult to get the notoriety and, in the, in, in the, you know, people behind you to, to be a draft pick at the very least. But you're mm-hmm. right. I still think like that, that critical midget year guys is like where kids yeah. sort of pin their hopes on you know, getting picked in. and really it's just the start, you know, and if they can kind of get um, their mm-hmm. head around the fact that, that whether you get picked or not, it's just an opportunity to showcase yourself and you can showcase yourself from there on a junior hockey year and, in tier in uh, in um, prep school hockey, where you know wherever you can major midget hockey, you can keep playing if you love it, and and people will eventually see you. I agree, but it's uh, less and less common. Like we talked, you know, the the days of the guy getting in his car and going to watch a double C juvenile game or going to watch a double double B midget game in some obscure place, uh, Amherst, Nova Scotia, pretty rare that they want to watch the. Mm-hmm you know, showcase uh, AAA mostly events that go on, you know, monthly towards the end of the year. That's really what's what, what scouts do now. You guys know that. So, yeah. so it's different, but as, as long as you love it, I, I agree, as long as you love it and you keep playing, you know, at some point people are going to notice. So I, I think that's good advice for sure. 
Well, before we get into everything that you've gone through and everything, like I've got a theory that, you know, I, I you know, the OHL, you look at them and they, they draft like what, 300 kids a year, I believe. And there's only two per team that can play. So that's 40 kids. And then you have these 16 year old kids going to play tier two junior against 20 year olds. Some of them are, have already turned 21 during the season. I mean, there's a big gap there. And I've, I've been a big proponent and I've talked to Dave Branch and a lot of the big guys in, in uh, Ontario Hockey, Hockey Canada, about having a major high profile midget league in Ontario where 16 and 17 year olds can safely play against guys their own age and develop a little bit better. I, I Personally, I think they would anyway. I, I'd like to get your thought on that. Well, you know, I've been preaching this for so long, Squid. Like, it's like, you know, again, these kids get to this critical moment at minor midget, and whether they get picked or not, you know, there's, I think, you know, west of Toronto, things are a little different. When you go east of Toronto, there's a lot of tier two outfits uh, and the, the CCHL and the OJ and stuff that, that have U18 programs that are affiliates, like feeder systems that into the tier two programs. That's really the blueprint for me to keep these kids playing. Because what happens mm -hmm. down here a lot of times is, and when I, I coached junior C where we were allowed one 16 year old only and junior B down here, you're allowed to, right? So, so there's only so many cards, right? So there's, there was right. times when I was coaching junior C, we'd have graphics. OHL draft picks, mid-round picks that were still in OHL camp, who we knew if they came back or got cut, and the likelihood they got cut was was going to happen, that they had no place to play, if you can imagine. So imagine an eighth-round pick of Spitfires. Yeah. He gets cut, and he comes back, and he's got there's no junior B cards left because it's the end of September, and they're sort of stuck. So I agree with you. I would like to see a U18, major midget is one thing, but a U18 team or a 16-year-old, if he's good and he doesn't want to play junior, maybe he's small, he's real skilled, he doesn't, doesn't want to get chased around by 20-year-olds, he can play in that league. You know, prep yeah. school is also a pretty good viable option. They do a really good job of it out west. I just, I think it costs money and not every family. And I mean, we, we, you know, talk about hockey being expensive enough as it is. You don't want to, you don't want to handcuff some, um, you know, kids who... <laughs> families don't have the income to do it they can't afford to put 20 or 30 or 50 grand towards a prep school education just to keep playing mm -hmm. hockey so the model is there in my opinion i've watched kentville and i've watched some of these cchl teams in the east they do a really good job they funnel these kids in their, their coaches run practice in some cases for the u18 team and those kids and eventually end up in tier two and they're not competing necessarily with junior C and B down there because it's a different age bracket. So the, the junior C and B teams look for kids older that pass that. So that the ones that don't move on to tier two can then slide in to see if they're not good enough or, or be at that, at that point at 18 years old, which is really the way you should do it. Cause then these kids aren't feeling like they're not just the youngest players, but they're also small and maybe it's not the, exactly the best uh, development place for them at that particular point. But, we just have to buy into it. And again, there's there's a big thing happening down here. We can apply to go into the to the OJ. So Leamington Junior B wants to play in the OJ because they want the notoriety or recognition that goes with being a tier two team, where you know all the other Junior B outfits down here would love to have that. You know, tier two. It's it's really just a, it's just a it's just a title. It doesn't mean that there's no the players in Junior B here are 
are any less better than the tier two kids up north. It's just that we don't have the same title. And everybody you know that wants to get noticed either has to go to the OJ or they got to go to the BC Junior League because it's tier two and it's considered the best. So, yeah, I think, you know, you you, you could go play tier two in, in Blind River or, or uh, Espanola, no disrespect, and it wouldn't be as competitive as the Junior B Leagues down here. It's good. You know that. So why do they get the Junior A title and these, these teams down here don't? And it just means they don't get scouted because in the world of scouting, maybe it's not seen as, as high a profile outfit. And I always tell them the Ryan Jones story. Ryan Jones pushed in the NHL, Edmonton, Minnesota, um, Nashville. I mean, he's a, he's a local kid. So I was home from – Oh gosh, two thousand and five or four. Miami, Ohio. Miami, yeah, Ohio. Miami, Ohio. There you go, great player. And so that kid was playing junior. Played B with here. my son. <laughs> yep, playing junior B here in Chatham. He was uh, nineteen years old. I get home in April. He's in the Sutherland Cup final. It's the junior B final down here, and he scored. Somebody says to me, "That's his sixtieth goal of the year." And I'm like, "What?" So yeah, he got fifty or forty-eight in the regular season. And that's his twelfth in the playoffs. So. And I'm standing beside Chris Bergeron, who you know is good. And I said, Bergeron, mm-hmm. you offered this kid a scholarship yet? Holy cow. Like, he's like, buddy, I think I can get him as a walk-on because no one's ever here to see him, which is really sad. You know, the kid Jeez. scored 60 goals. He's as big as me, 6'2", you know, 200-pound kid playing up and down, pound, you know, great shot, yeah. good skater. I'm thinking, so Berge, of course, he thinks he's, he's not going to offer him anything because he's not seen anybody in the rink for a month watching him. And he's only watching him because he's from Wallaceburg, you know, 25 minutes north of Chatham. So yeah. about a month later, six weeks later, he gets drafted by Minnesota in the third round, the NHL draft. So Minnesota knew about him, but nobody in college did. You know, it's like, so I just say, well, you know, there's a case where here's a kid that, you know, word of mouth at the very least should have brought some people into the building. You know? So, and it's just the the title of junior B doesn't have the same clout in the scouting community as tier two does. And that, as you know, doesn't always reflect on the players that are in it. So, yeah. Anyway, well, I, I got gonna... off topic there, but I, I get, no, no, yeah. I, well, I it's a good cut kids. I used to have to cut kids that were well, 16 so, years so... old. And I'd say, where are you going to be playing this year? And they'd be like, ah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I got a job. I'm a year from school. And, and you think, you, you know, you, there's no place for them to, to filter in, you know, it's like now all of a sudden they get this moment yeah. where really it starts and it's the end for so many. So it's hard to watch. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, Todd, let's go back to you. Now, you you go through this, and so you're sort of a moment. You go, you're playing in Windsor. Things are going well for you. The draft year. Uh, you had a very interesting draft conversation with the NHL GM that changed the dynamic of your destination, so to speak. Maybe walk us through that whole period and uh, leading up to draft day when you actually attended. Yeah, so it's a, it's a good – I mean – it's quite a story because I, I, you know, by the end of my, my second year, the final draft rankings, you guys know, come out in, in hockey news, and I'm the, I'm the top ranked prospect. So Phil Esposito was going to run the Tampa Bay Lightning, and that's the first year of their, of their program. So he brings, Phil brings myself and a few guys down in sort of early May to Tampa. I check out Tampa, and <clears throat> you can imagine, I'm a Canadian kid. I never left Canada, so I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> And we get to spend, you know, four or five days on the beach in Tampa with Phyllis Zio. And it was like, you know, my dad was just shaking his head. So we go down, we spend a few days, we do some interviews, we meet, you know, we see the rink and all the things we're going to need to know. And and Phil's awesome. And um, I get home the next week and he calls me at my house and says, you know, listen, Todd, I, this is a little unusual, but based on what we've seen and, you know, there's not much hockey being played now, the Memorial Cup was happening, I think. 
you know, you're going to be our guy. We're going to take you first overall in a month or so in, in June when the draft happens in Montreal. So I'm thrilled. You know, I think I'm going to be the first pick in the draft. And he's like, I'd like for you to keep that quiet. You know, don't tell anyone. You can tell your family and your closest friends kind of thing. And so I do and kind of keep it on the down low. So then, you know, I get in the car with my agent, Don, me and on a Wednesday night before the draft. And we drive down to Montreal. And Don is from Montreal, as you guys know. And he's pumped just to take me and show me Montreal, you know. So we, we buy a suit. I remember we went to Harry Rosen. We bought a new suit. So they didn't have a good suit for the draft. But we went, uh, we got in his Mercedes and we drove down to Montreal from Toronto. It was pretty cool. So we check in, all good. We go out. My friends are starting to filter in. My family's starting to filter in from home. And it's Friday nights. So the whole draft would happen Saturday back in the day. So, you know, 9 a.m., you had to be down at the Montreal Forum. And Friday night, the night before, about dinner time, Donnie calls me to his room. Donnie, Ian says, I need to speak to you. Come on, come on down to my room. So I go to his room. He says, Hey, I got off the phone with, with Phil Esposito and um, they'd had meetings with their, their scouting staff and management group. And they said, yeah, they, they want to let their scouts because it's the first year of their program. They want to let them make the, the decision on the first pick. And they've decided on Roman Hammerlick. So you're not going to Tampa. So I've been sitting on this information for well over a month. You know, I'm like, wow, like uh, that's, you know, got my new suit in the closet. I'm, I'm all set. You know? <laughs> so, so I'm like, well, what, well, what now? You know, what, what, what's going to happen now? And Donnie's like, I, I don't know. I don't know who's going to take it. I made a couple of calls, but I don't have a sense of who, what they're going to do. So, you know, we go through the motion. I go to the draft. I mean, I, to be fair, like I'm, I'm really one of those kids. I just want to get picked and whatever happens, you know, happens. And so I, I go, I sit in, in the, I'm like six rows up in the forum. I can see everything happening. My family's up to the right of me, my mom and dad, my sister. And uh, and Donnie's to the left of me. So, of course, no, none of my family and friends sitting behind me know that this has changed over the last 24 hours. They, they all think this is going to happen. So, of course, they get up, they take a camera look, and it's just like everybody's like, whoa, you know what? You can hear the crowd. Like, oh, what? what just happened there, right? <laughs> so, no big deal. Ottawa takes Yashin. Um San Jose takes Mike Ratchy. So then it's Quebec. So I'm sitting there and I'm at this point, you know, the ca- I told you guys, the camera's coming up the aisle. Like, what's wrong with Warner? You know, is he hung over? Like, what, you know, what's going <laughs> Why is he not getting picked right now? You know, like, and so um, the Quebec guys stand up. Pierre Paget, Pierre Gauthier stand up from the table and they have the jersey under their arm and they kind of nod over to Donnie, Donnie and say, you know, like, you're, we're taking your guy, you know, and we're only. 50 yards away not even so donnie and donnie right beside me here and my mom and dad here says oh shit quebec's gonna take it so, <laughs> so i'm sitting at the draft you know i got my suit on i'm thinking you know the camera's right here i gotta i gotta keep a straight face out of this and this is my agent saying this about the quebec nordique and so of course he knew he knew all the things going on behind the scenes that he uh he never really told me about kept from me at least at that point so I get, I, you know, listen, I'm thrilled. I get picked. They go down. I put the jersey on. So you guys will remember the year prior, Eric uh, Lindros yeah. didn't put the jersey on. So, you know, we're in the forum. And, you know, their arch rival, the Quebec Nordique, are, take, are picking their guy. And they finally pick, you know, pick me. So the places are happy because they, everybody thought I was going to be first anyway. But then I put the jersey on. And they recognized that the year prior, in the francophone you know community that somebody snubbed them and here i am putting so i get a standing ovation by montreal fans <laughs> for the quebec you know franchise and i thought that was pretty cool so it was a nice moment at the draft but anyway yeah um 
that all was crazy, crazy time. And then of course I go to my, I go to my first camp and, and um, you know, this is before the Lindros trade. So, you know, they were picking fourth for a reason. And the camp was, I played well enough to make it. I was in the final hours of training camp when they offered me a contract and it turned out it was what Donnie had expected lower than it should have been and and not in the same ballpark as the other guys picked around me who were already signed so i went without a contract to camp you know played well enough to arguably be on the opening roster and uh it's 12 hours before the start of the season i get a get a fax uh, from donnie sends me this fax and said this is the contract you can't you can't accept it it's, it's a joke and uh, here's a plane ticket you take yourself home tomorrow so that's what i did i never really got cut from my first camp which was you know I always look back on that now. It's like, well, you know, I, I could have played in the league. I mean, the money, the the tax in Quebec, you know, all those things factor into the agent's decision and and the way negotiations go. You guys know that, but but um, yeah, it was strange because I never, I really just took a cab to the airport and went home. And so it was. You uh, cut yourself. Yeah. I, well, yeah. I, I guess so. I guess I did. Right. And then, you know, the next year at camp the team had made the Lindros trade and they got all these players. So it was a much more competitive uh, camp. And then um, at the end of that camp, I did get cut, but the offer was that to go to the national team with, uh, with one of my teammates, Dwayne Norris, uh, on, on then Quebec's camp at that time too. So we jumped at it and uh, early October joined the, the team in the, in the Sioux for our first game. So talk about that whole experience. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, looking back, it was just, you know, we're all young guys. We all, you know, we tell we tell stories. We all lived in the same house in Calgary, and there was about six of us. Dwayne Norris, um, Adrian O'Coin, Brian Savage, Todd Halushko, and myself all lived in the same house in Calgary. So we'd be in Calgary, guys, for, you know, two or three weeks doing two practices a day, and then we'd get on a flight and go to Europe, play somebody, or we'd go on a flight and go play the Americans in New York or play the Americans in Minneapolis or play, you know, somewhere. And so we did these blocks of, you know, two a days often altitude training, all the stuff in, in Calgary. So we, we, you know, we only really were, we didn't have any home games, but we only had home practices. We would be, so we'd be in Calgary for, you know, three week stretch and then on the road for a month or another three week stretch on the road for a month. And so we got home from one of our, our European trips and the lady who'd rented us our, um, our house, the five of us, had locked the doors. So we, <laughs> so we, uh, we come right from the airport. We had a, you know bags of McDonald's. We're knocking on the door. We can't get in. Guys are trying to go around the back, get in the patio door, and all this stuff. So somebody in the neighborhood called the cops on us. So we don't know. There's two carloads of guys and all their bags uh, with McDonald's coming from the airport. You can imagine, and <laughs> we can't get in. So now we're calling. We're going to call back to the you know Hockey Canada offices and say, hey, what's 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 the lady's number? We need to get we need to get into our apartment, our our house. It was a house. So we're pulling out of the neighborhood. We're heading back towards Father David Bauer Arena to go down to the office, and cops. So like not just a few cops, like roadblock cop, and then three cops <laughs> in the rear view. So I'm in the back seat of this one of one one of the cars, and Dwayne Norris is in front of me, and he's got all the McDonald's in his lap. So as this is happening, he's looking back and well, what are they what are they pulling us over for? You know, so he's like taking all the McDonald's and he's like putting it down on his feet, you know, getting whatever. So this police officer, as he's getting out of his cruiser, sees him at his feet doing whatever he's doing. They think we've been robbing this house, whatever we've been doing around the corner. 
he's got a gun to the window. <laughs> so, so I see this cop come up from up from behind, and I see him with this gun pointed at the glass right to Dwayne Norris's head. I'm like, boys, sit still, you know. But so we rolled the window. Down. We explained our story. We got up. We got off. But man, it was crazy. So some of the things we did in Europe, just as a young group of guys experiencing Europe for the first time and getting to uh, just you know different cultures, different programs, some of the cities we got to see, you know, it's a reason really I went back to Europe later because I really, I was comfortable with, um, you know, Finland and Switzerland, Germany, all places I'd seen on this sort of Olympic program. So a uh, great group of guys. I think I told you we were set to have a, a reunion uh, about a year ago up in Collingwood. And then uh, of course we couldn't do that. So we're Tom Running was our coach, and um, you know we're still going to try to get together at some point here when we can. And it's supposed to be 25 years; it's going to be 27 by the time we do it. But yeah, yeah awesome guys. And you know, when you look back at uh, your career, you know, Squid, it's like you take different moments. And I was only really a teenager when it started, but that's a group of guys that were pretty close, and we still have uh, you know group chats and talk all the time. Well, that's a great experience, and. Uh... You know, I can't really speak. I went to the World Championships a couple of times in Finland and Prague. But, I mean, my son, he got to play with the U.S. Development Program and went over yeah. to the Europe probably four or five times a year and then in university going to Alaska and different places. So, you know, I, I kind of – I'm a little bit jealous that I didn't get those opportunities. But, <laughs> you know, what the heck. I mean, uh, I, I went a different route and uh, didn't really get to get those opportunities. So well, the Olympic uh, experience, you know, I would say like it's, it's one of those things like, you know, I, I told you I, the story. Uh, my mom says to me before I go to that to the to the games, the games are in Lillehammer, Norway. She says, "Hey, there's a there's a girl from Chatham who's a officiator. I want you to try and find her when you go. Her name's Shaylin Bourne. Of course, we all know who Shaylin Bourne is now. Of course. And so she would have yeah. been about seventeen at the time. So we're, you know, we got our red goofy red Canada outfits on with like cape and all you know the, i don't know if you remember the look at the time so we're walking into the the stadium around the track and they're parading us through with all the countries like they do at the opening ceremonies and you get to like our section and somebody sends us up one side well she'd gone up the other other side and we literally sit down beside each other for the opening ceremonies of, of the olympic games so this girl that my mom said we need to look, look for this girl she's dad and my friends with her mother we're both figure skaters and, and i sat down right beside her so that we've you know had a lifelong friendship from that. We came home from the, the the game. She was a medalist, and so was I. And we did school talks and went to hospitals and and all kinds of stuff together at that time when we were you know just kids. We were really just kids. So so it was pretty cool. Um, yeah, the whole the whole vibe around the Olympics. I would say like you know it's it's good for you know guys like us, Squid, who are so hardwired for hockey. Like we, you know, your whole life, you're kind of this has been your focus, or at least since you're you know a teenager, this is kind of what you've decided to do and and you forget that there's a whole other many many athletes in all different disciplines who are, are doing doing and working and sacrificing just like you right and and uh, in some cases uh, it's a lot harder and um, so it was just cool to meet uh you know skiers and figure skaters and you know uh, snowboarders all you know uh bobsledders all the all the different athletes um and because really um, in the Olympic Village, that's all it is, is the athletes in the team. So you can't walk, you know, 100, 200 yards without running into you know, athletes from different countries and recognizing people from, you know, the world stage and skiing or whatever it may be, the popular 
uh, athletes around the world. So it was, it was just good to recognize that there's a whole other world of uh, athletics going on besides hockey and give me some perspective about what they go through and the challenges they have. Too. I, I loved it. I loved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, no, that's a great experience. Well, speaking of the challenges, let's 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 uh, fast forward a little bit and get to your challenge of uh, getting traded to Toronto. First off, how you found out about getting traded to Toronto, one of the biggest trades in Toronto history, and then your experience playing in Toronto. Well, the story of the, the trade, while I was in Lilyhammer, Cliff Fletcher uh, found my parents. So I, I didn't foresee this while I was in the Olympics, but when I got home... Um, uh, my dad told me, he said, Cliff, Cliff had come up and sat behind him in the warm-up of one of the games and just said, hey, um, I'm Cliff Fletcher. And my, and my dad like, yeah, we know who you are. And uh, <laughs> and uh, he's like, we, we really are fond of Todd, and we, we like it. we'd like to get him at some point in, a, in some kind of trade. And, and so just uh, wanted to introduce myself. And so for Cliff to do that was pretty cool, obviously. And uh, so my parents thought better at telling me in the middle of the Olympic Games, as you can imagine. So I... I got home. I'd actually gone to Cornwall and played in the minors for about a month. I got home in you know, May, and, and Dad says to me, "Hey, just so you know, like uh, Cliff uh, made a point of coming to speak to us during the Olympics, and, and he thinks um, if if it's possible, he's going to try and get you in a trade." And I'm thinking, "Wow, well, like, when you just telling me this now, you know?" <laughs> so <laughs> the story is that we went to watch the draft in um, on Tuesday on TSN, of course. And the only buddy, the only one in our family that had TSM was like granddad. He lived in town. So we'd gone uptown. There was a local kid named Chris Allen who was uh, going to get drafted that day. He was a Kingston Frontenac, a big defenseman. He got picked by Florida in the second or third round. So we were going to go up and watch anyway. And as we turn on the TV, there's already talk, you know, amongst the panelists and people on the floor of the of the draft about this conversation between Quebec and Toronto. So, of course, that and looked at each other like, wow, that's I wonder if that would be me, you know, like given what we, we learned in Lillehammer. So sure enough. Yeah, it was, uh, it was crazy. So that's, you know, the end of June and, um, you know, school, like I, I played for Motor City Smitty in Windsor, former Leaf, tough guy. And he had lots of friends within the Toronto organization. So whenever I was hurt or I had a knee problem at one point, um, I would go down and see Chris Broders. You know, I knew some of the guys on the team just from Smitty, um, uh, being good enough to take me down there and show me around and get, you know, introduce me to some of those people. So, so I, I was thrilled. I, I was thrilled. And one of the, one of the guys that, you know, I got to know most and through my agent, Donnie Meehan and through Smitty was, was Wendell. So I remember thinking to myself, like, well, it's too bad that, you know, it's too bad that Wendell won't be there when I go there, you know, like he, he's obviously going the other way. So yeah. yeah, I mean, it changed the whole trajectory of my career really because you guys know what happened in Quebec and and the you know financial situation that you know the, the what they did and, and then ultimately the ownership just selling the team and moving it and everything else so I just yeah I felt right I was an Ontario kid and, and watched the Leafs growing up and and um yeah tough lineup to crack under under Pat Burns obviously my first couple of years but um I really really enjoyed it and um that summer I got traded, you know, just sort of, you know, was a turning point and kind of, you know, refocusing me into what I really wanted to do. You know? So talk about your relationship. So get, let me, oh. oh, go ahead. I was going to say, Pat get into that, I, yeah. I just want to give you a quick update. My son is busing home <laughs> after the game last night from Allen, Texas. 
They're still three hours away. The AC broke down. They're going, they're stopping every half an hour or so to make sure they don't overheat the bus. And they got to play Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So that, that's what you go through in the ECHL. <laughs> well, that's the iron lung. That's the oh, iron yeah. lung. Yeah. Hey, you know, That'll humble so, your real you know this, Squid. Some of those buses are pretty nice. Some of those buses are pretty yeah. nice. Like I played they, in they Europe are, and we used to travel by cool. bus. Yeah, in Europe. And then we used to have to bring our own pillow and like a little mat, like a little yoga mat. And that's what we'd sleep on the floor. Yeah, you know, on the, the trips yeah. are two or three hours, but you know, some of these buses I've seen there with all the sleepers and the and the TVs and pretty nice. I mean, you got eighteen yeah, hours. That's a design one. Yeah, yeah, that's a design one. Is enough. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, the I got a design one in Charleston when I when I was coaching there. Yeah. They had had these rock and roll buses, which were beautiful, but there was only like five bunks and a big bed in the back, and it was like wasn't enough room. So we designed it so there were a couple of three or four bunks in the front for us and then a door and all the way down both sides there was three levels of bunks for the players so that everybody could get a good night's sleep when we traveled and uh, uh so that, that was kind of cool getting to go to the company and sitting down with the guys and figuring out just how we could organize it and and now that company rents buses out to probably half the teams in the echl Oh, do they? Yeah. Well, no wonder you won. The guy's got yeah. your rest. It's tough thing in that league. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, let's get back to your time in Toronto and uh, playing under Pat Burns and your relationship and how that kind of all unfolded and some of the successes those teams uh, were enjoying at the time. Yeah, well, it's a good team, right? Uh, so they've been to the you know conference finals twice when I get there. And so, you know, I, I knew immediately it was going to be a, a, a different vibe completely altogether, you know, going to camp. So yeah, I was ready. I, you know, I, I, I'd had an ankle injury. I told you guys I ankle in the Olympics and I was sort of nursing that. I spent part of the summer down in Toronto working with Chris uh, Broadhurst to kind of get my, my ankle sorted out to get to, to be ready for training camp. But I went, uh, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I was so, you know, so excited to just, you know, I've watched this team. And so you are in camp and you've seen this team that was in the final four the year before. And, and my very first scrimmage, so like I had a practice and this is the, the next morning we have a game, like an inner squad scrimmage to second day of camp. Squid, you know, there's a, it's a bit, uh, you know, it's a bit messy normally the first couple of days, right? Well, I'm standing in front of the net and I get hit with a slap shot right in the eye and it closes my eye right over. Like, so day, day three, I can't see. Day four, um, you know, I'm just getting my eye open. They don't let me go on the ice. And day five, I finally get back. And I'm doing just a practice drill, skating wide. I get tripped, fall on the boards, and dislocate my shoulders. So that's my first training camp. I had two skates, and that was done. And then, of that course, it's the lockout. It's the year of the lockout. So so camp sort of ends or breaks, and the lockout happens. No games are scheduled to start. Negotiations are all happening, and so a bunch of us that were kind of on the bubble uh, got said the Myers. So now I'm in St. John's, Newfoundland, and I'm in a I'm in a harness, and uh, you know I've got a dislocated shoulder. So I just did I did basically the first six weeks of the season I just did rehab and tried to you know skate a little bit, ride the bike, you know how that goes. So yeah, by the time I got back, you know I was actually <laughs> for one, I mean. You know, uh, it, it was just a different, uh, different time. So it wasn't until my second camp that I'd spent the summer in Toronto and I trained with Chris and I'd run with Dougie and we'd go to the track and we'd do stuff. 
And so I, that I really felt like healthy and uh, ready to take a job and had a good camp and, and even then got cut. And I remember being in Collingwood for my, you know, the very end of camp. And I'm sitting in the coach's office with my kitchen and Pat Burns and, and I'm sort of pleading, you know, they'd already decided to get cut. You know, it worked. And so I hadn't really spoken to either of them at all in my two years, you know, really. And so I was just sort of like, you know, pleading my case. I think I, you know, I think I can help you guys and whatever. And Burns, he finally, he kind of cuts me off. And he's just like, listen, you know, this, this game doesn't owe you anything. He says to me, this game doesn't owe you anything. He says, you got to go down the minors and prove that you're a good pro and whatever else. And, and if you do that, we'll get, you'll get a chance. But I'm not going to hand you a job on this team. This is a good team. And I was like, oh. Fair enough. And I just kept my mouth shut and and I went to the minors and I played I played well. I was healthy finally and I I was about I don't even know if I played twelve or fifteen games, I forget. And there was an injury last uh, couple of days of October and I got called up. So I mean you know, you know Pat, right? Um was a no nonsense guy and I mean it took you know I was just sort of, I didn't want to be in the minors. And so I kind of just, you know, pleaded my case. And it wasn't normal for young guys to talk to Pat like that, I don't think. So, <laughs> and then after that, he, he liked me fine. Like he brought me up and, and uh, he left me alone. He didn't, he didn't say a lot to me, but there was nights when he didn't play me and he, he'd say, you got to be better on the boards. That's it. Like, that's all I'd get out of him. Right? I'm like, okay. Like, I, I, so I try to, you know, I work on that in practice with Kitch. You know, like Kitch would always do all the stuff after practice with the players and, so I worked. I work with Mike Kitchen. I th- I'd thank him if I could today. You know, when I wasn't playing for hours on end for about a three, four month period there, when I just got my foot in the door, and we did a lot of stuff together uh, that made me better, and ultimately, you know, kept me kept me in the game. It kept me in the league, uh, you know, for ten years. So that that uh, that was some tough lessons to learn. Pat was tough. He didn't like to have a lot of young guys. He liked to have veteran teams, and that's how he had success wherever he'd been. So it was. T- it took. Um, it took some time to win him over for sure. <laughs> well, I was going to say. So you're moving along in Toronto. Talk about this. Uh, talk about playing at Maple Leaf Gardens. You know, you played there as a bit as a junior, but talk about the last year, just the significance and the historical significance of all that on you and everything that developed all around that. Yeah, it was it was awesome. Like we all knew it was coming, but you know you can't really prepare for all the, you know, all the ceremony and circumstance that all went went with it. Uh, you know, I said we we signed so much. Uh, you know, the memorabilia we had. You know, we take trips on. We get on the bus after practice at the gardens and take it down to your Canada Center and just sort of you know take pictures in the sure. rink and see how the construction was going throughout the year. And um, it was just, first of all, we were a good team that we, you know, we'd added a bunch of key players, Cujo, um, Stevie Thomas, Sylvain Cote, Brian Burrard, a bunch of new guys came in and we were, uh, you know, a top few team in the league at that point. So we're, the fall was exciting anyway in the city and, you know, the lead up to the, to the new building. Uh, it was, it was a cool time to be a leaf. And um, yeah. And then, you know, Ricky, you'll remember, like, just get, just getting to meet all the guys. So all the guys who have, you know, plaques and busts and statues around the, around uh, town, all the famous Leafs were all in town. They would all come down and, and, uh, you know, chat with us before practices and games. And so, yeah, it was just, you know, for a, 
a real Leaf fan as a kid to meet these guys uh, was pretty was really cool, you know. And and so the night of uh, the night of was was special because you know I, I don't know how you feel about Ricky, but I just thought it was awesome the way they introduced everybody. You know, there was nothing like being at Maple Leaf Gardens, the crowd being right there, and guys getting up out of the crowd and coming down. It was almost like they were getting drafted, you know, like, and they'd come down <laughs> and, and walk the carpet. And, uh, man, it was it was, it was was awesome. So, and then we laid an egg against Chicago. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> the, whole, the whole year we had it, we, first of all, we made some great signings in the, in the offseason. We brought some key guys in. The team was playing you know, on your Pat Quinn, a little different style. We weren't quite so preoccupied with the trap and all the things that teams were doing before that. We were playing a little bit more like they play now. Um, and so we, and we were winning. And, um, and yeah, just getting to meet all the people, all the former players and all the, you know, all the dinners and signings and just it was an exciting uh, time to be a Leaf, yeah. It's great. Yeah, well, I wasn't one of those guys. Well, tell them why you uh, missed how you missed. No, I know. Well, I, I, I remembered that you had to be away. Yeah, but anyway. Well, what happened, uh, the, the beginning was that they weren't going to pay for anybody to get there or hotels or anything like that, which wasn't a, an issue for me. But I know a lot of other guys had an issue with that because they couldn't afford to get there. So then eventually they ended up paying for everybody. But I was coaching St. John Flames, Calgary's farm team, we were in Cincinnati playing against Anaheim's farm team, which was coached by Mike Babcock at the time. And uh, Nick Palano was my boss. And you know what? He, we had a couple of conversations about it. I didn't push it, but at the same time, I could feel from him that, you know, if, if I left, there was probably going to be some consequences to pay. So I just figured, <laughs> what the heck, I better stay in Cincinnati for the weekend and do my job. <laughs> As it turned out. Well, now, <laughs> well, Todd, now as a historian, I'd be remiss. We didn't talk about a very historic goal you scored at the Air Canada Center week after the last game on February 20th, 1999. First off, walk us through the whole day leading up to it. I mean, everything for you guys, the fans may not understand, may think it's a little quirky, but it's new ice, new dressing room. Where are you going to sit? Where are you going to park? All that sort of yeah. stuff that goes on. Ticket requests. All these things coming at you, but everything happened over this two-week period. Then you go out and score the first goal in the new rink. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, um, you know, first I had, you know, you, you know, you have this sort of routine. Like, I, I'm, I'm not really, you know, you hold into all the, the rituals of some guys, but I used to like to get on the – I lived at, I lived at Market Square. I lived at Harbor Street, down at Harbor by the Westin. I lived uh, at King & Young for a period of time, and – I used to love to get on the subway, right, and take it up to Carlton and just walk down to the gardens, you know. And it was sort of like my 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 time to just like kind of focus on, you know, realize how special it is to be a Leaf, because all these people are here and they they would know who I was, even though I was one of the lesser white Leafs. But I would say hi to people. I'd buy a paper. I'd get a coffee, you know. And I just kind of spend ten minutes between Carl, you know, between Young and and, yep. and the gardens, and and that was sort of my thing, right. So yeah, you're right about the whole ritual. Cause guys lived in the north. You had to drive. It was like you know the parking, all the stuff. We they went over all that the week prior, right? So that was one of the things we got on the bus. This is where you park. This is the pass you'll have. This is how you get in the door. Is your swipe card? All that stuff was all. Obviously, we got them through all that. But you know, I say it's like one of those. You know, as a you know a fourth line 
third, fourth, my guy, I wasn't supposed to get that goal, you know, and, and people talk that we had some kind of, you know, bet about who would get it. I, I wasn't in on it. Yeah. They didn't think I was going to get it, but so yeah, it was my second shift of the game and it was my seventh goal of the year guys. And, and it was in February. So I think Ricky, you were probably in the mid forties by that point. No, most of your years. So, you know, it was a cool thing to happen to a guy like me. I said, you know, like, um, you know, those kind of, kind of things are usually reserved for the, you know, Sundeans or, or TV Thomases of the world on that team. Right. So, so yeah, the guys are excited for me. It was cool. Like, you know, Immediately, there was this thing with the Hall of Fame. They took my stick, they grabbed the puck, and uh, you know there was some you know controversy about what they, what we would keep and what they would take, and what was historic and what was Leafs property and what was the Hall of Fame's property. But it all got sorted. So the Hall, like literally, the puck and stick from that that goal are still in the Hall of Fame, and and uh, so that's you know looking back again, that's pretty cool for me, right? Well, you went through a similar thing, Squid. Remember when you got your 50th? Yeah. You just took it all. Uh, Lefty Reed was a curator at the time. And, you know, I mean, there was no rules. You didn't sign anything. You didn't do anything. You just, he just came in the room after the first 50 goal season and said, yeah, we want to put your stick in the Hall of Fame. Oh, really? Okay. You know, and then the next year and the next year, same thing. And then all of a sudden, like years later, I'm looking to get my sticks back because they're no longer on display. They keep them in the back room, and they they do some trips. I think with uh, with some of the things. I mean, I had to go through hoops and whatever to get to get that stick. And I, I ended up getting the first one, but I had to allow them to keep the second and the third in order to get the first Is that one. Right, so, eh? uh, yeah, See, I have was, a letter. It was really a letter here that says you, at any time you want to come get it because it's it's on display. It's not always on display. The stick. I mean, there's a, there's a, they take things out, they put things in. You you guys know this, and mm -hmm. so at yeah. one point I know a couple of years ago it was most of the summer because I had a bunch of people that had been to Toronto and got the whole thing would text me and say your sticks being, is being displayed again kind of thing, and I'm like, oh cool, you know. So it, it's not always on display, but I have a letter that you know authenticity or whatever that says, you know, at any point you want to, you want to take the stuff that yours to take. Uh, and so I, geez, I not, I have no need for it at this point, you know, maybe in 30 years, if I want to give it to my grandkids or something, I could do that, but it's still pretty cool to think that they can go there and, and see it. Right. So I, I'm just soon leave it. Now, the one thing you didn't have to say, yeah. and, you, and you got a letter, but it was a different kind of letter uh, a number of months later in November of 99, when you were told you're moving to Tampa. So now all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah. so how did that day unfold? Uh, and just talk about that whole experience. I mean, just again, Todd, you're going from some real good hockey markets that you played in to basically a beach resort. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not taking a shot at Tampa, but it was, you know, I was, you know. Well, let's I be realistic. Team, yeah, I, I, the team had gotten better. We were a good team. And, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I had no idea that I was going to, it's, it's like, it's, it was just I still shocked for me to talk about it. Cause it, it really hit me hard. Like I, I went, I was eating in the, we used to have our pregame meals in the platinum lounge, you know, so we'd go in there half a dozen, 10 of us every day and, and eat our meals. And then we'd go home and have a nap for the games. And so our PR guy came in and said, Pat wants to, wants to see you. And then, you know, I just ordered a, you know, my, my, my lunch. And so I go in and he's like, yeah, I'm, we traded just like just you know just like that. Cole, you know, traded you to Tampa. And he said, "Cliff's been trying to get you for uh, over a year." Cliff Fletcher again, trying to get me for over a year. And so, <laughs> you guys will remember that Freddie Modine, yeah, Freddie Modine yeah. had uh, 
just been sent there yeah. to the training camp. So I, I, you know, I knew Freddie and I'd actually I'd spoken to Freddie a couple of times. And so, yeah, it was just, it's just a shock, you know, like I really wanted to see, sort of see it through in Toronto because the team had gone from, you know, the, the 93 14s were good teams. Then it was thin for a bit. And then we, we were getting better again. I felt like I wanted to be a part of that. Right. And, and I liked living in Toronto and I was from here. I could get home in two and a half hours and my parents were at home games. It was just, I liked it. I liked playing there. And I, you know, and so at the time, if you remember, uh, Dimitri Kristich uh, won his arbitration uh, hearing uh, with Boston. But then Boston, you have the right to walk away. And they did. They walked away from it. And so draw picked him up. And so they're getting Kristich. And then it you know, becomes a numbers game a bit with me again, right? The year prior, I played in the playoffs uh, kind of as a third line guy. And so it was, uh, you know, Pat really just giving me a chance to play because he wasn't sure he was going to be able to let me play. And that's what he said. So, so yeah, I went, um, I wasn't happy about it at first. Like, I, I don't think I, looking back, I probably didn't handle it the way I should have, you know. And uh, But Steve Bledsoe was our close good and, and we had some heart-to-hearts. And he's like, I know you don't, you know, you know, you know how Ludzi is. He just... He's just a straight shooter. He's like, I know you don't like right away. I know you don't want to be here. And I'm like, hey, no, no, don't say that. Like, you know, I, and he's like, but I'm going to play you and you got to do some things for me. And, and that was sort of, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a tough relationship at first with Ludzi, but we got, we got where we wanted to get. And, and um, he helped me and I, I, I appreciated him at the end. And it was tough because, you know, you, you go from Toronto where it's just, it's such a, it's such a big part of the, the culture of the, the 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 league, the the sport, you know. It's uh, and you're down there. It just felt it just felt like a, it felt like a different league it, it sometimes, you know. And so, yeah, we had um, you know, Ludzi was our coach, um, Rick Dudley was our GM, Torch. and the two of them, yeah, yeah. And then Torch took over the next year, and things started. But he was assistant, was he not? Yeah, he, was he the assistant so coach. Yeah, he was. He was. But um, yeah. and then, you know, when when he took over, you know, I think Torts had been, you know, in New York and he'd been in Buffalo and he he kind of just put everybody on notice that some of the things that had been going on there weren't going to go on there anymore. <laughs> and uh, and it was really, you know, tough for some of the some of the younger guys um, because they'd not experienced what it was like elsewhere. And I was lucky because I, I did. And I played under Pat Burns and I played under Pat Quinn and I'd seen what the, you know, what coaching and what the, you know, what a well-run operation was about. So Torts was, when he took over, was, was more than happy to, to do that. Right. And, you know, tore out Torts. So I, I love, I like both guys. I like Ludzi too. We weren't as good a team, but then when Torts took over, the team got better and he made the young guys, the Richards and the Lecaviers and some of the young players could be some of those players accountable and leaders because they they'd not really seen how it should look yeah. and he made sure they knew what it should look like so <laughs> as only well, torch that, that was torch <laughs> that, that was torch in a nutshell really and i was there in buffalo when he was the assistant so it was a little bit different when you're the assistant you don't have that authority to really say a whole lot uh but i know once he took over as a head coach I love Torts. I thought he was a he's a great person. He he gives back to charities a lot. You know, yeah, he's a hard ass, but guess what? You're getting paid good money to go out and do your job. Uh somebody's gotta crack the whip once in a while. 
You know what I always say, Squid? Is I played for, I don't know, seven, seven Jack Adams winners. Right? You count them mm-hmm. up. You, you guys can do the math on that. Something like that. And the thing about some of the some some of the coaches that I played for, I'm not going to name names, but sometimes you they like to do their communicating through the media, right? So mm-hmm. I can remember a coach, you know, literally sort of hurrying the guys out of the dressing room after practice one day so he could have his press conference with the media. Okay, <laughs> so imagine this: when you're in your, you're in your room, it's your room. You get it, right? And he'd be, I just worked out and I was stretching and whatever, you know, getting your, fixing your stall, getting ready for the next day, whatever you're doing. And it's like, hey, hey hurry up. No, I got I to hold court with these guys. And I think, so, you know, you know, you know, Tortorella's track record with the media. Like, so some guys oh. like to, you know, some guys like to keep it, you know, the rapport with the media all on the up and up. And I can plant this story. I can, you know, I can say something about this guy and I know this guy. Whereas Torts is so, he still thinks he's playing. Like that's what that's the difference for me. Torts still th- still thought he was playing, so he's such a so such a part of the team that if you wrote something in the paper or you said something last week, last month, today about such and such a player that wasn't accurate, you didn't get it from Torts, then he was offended. <laughs> and I say I said guys, well, okay. I- I know you. I know you. Torts is portrayed a certain way in the media because he's not buddy buddy with him. He doesn't really care. He just yeah. knows that if you say something about my player that I haven't given to you, that I'm going to take offense to it. Whereas a lot of coaches can't wait to tell a media guy, "Oh, this guy, so and so, put this in your article tomorrow, so he reads it when he gets up, and then he comes to the rink with a fire on him." You know. So for me, <laughs> which would you rather have, Squid? I know what I'd rather have. And sometimes he's in your face and he'll stand there and look you right in the eye and tell you, you know, he's only five, six, you know what he looks like. So, but he doesn't mix yeah. any punches. And anything you read in the paper, he's already said to you twice. Yeah. <laughs> and that's I, not I, the same everywhere you go. That's not the same everywhere you go. You no. Know? Well, I never, I never got that. So uh, unfortunately, <laughs> during yeah. my career, I didn't have a coach <laughs> like that. Nobody that stuck up for us anyway. Um, but no, you do I mean, that. if, yeah, if I had if I had the opportunity and I could pick my coach, that's the type of coach I would have wanted. Because when I served coaching, that's kind of the way I was. I stuck up for my players. I I, I believed in them, uh, but they also knew what they had to do, and it, it, it was pretty clear the message. And uh, you know, I'd call guys in three guys every every day and have a little chat with them. I also would call the. I didn't do it very often, but there was a couple of times where I call in my captain, my assistants and say, listen, guys, you know, we, we just lost five in a row tomorrow. I'm going to rip you three guys in the paper. It has nothing to do with you guys. You guys have been working your tails off, but I got to wake up those other donkeys in that room. And they go, well, okay, no problem. So, so I'd be cutting them up. And I, cause I know that the other guys in the room are reading it and they're going, Holy cow. If he said that about these guys, what can he do with us? Like, he can get us out of here. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, nobody wanted stuff. to leave Charleston. So. Yeah, coaches do all that stuff. And, and towards, like, I'll say that, you know, I, I honestly, and he said some things about all kinds of players in the, in the media. But and that people would say, well, you know, it's not like towards to, to, you know, say stuff in the media about players. He never does that. Like, he defends players to a fault in the media, right? 
But the only yeah. times he would do that is if you know he'd already told this guy for weeks on end that, and then it becomes like a, a bit of a story, right? And so we've seen with some of the players that have left him in the past that that's how he does it, right? It's like, well, I've been in this guy's ear for six weeks, so he's not getting the message. But I'll say this, like, Torts, he's a man of it, like, I couldn't believe, like, he he would, you know, I probably talked to him three times in his office and five, whatever it was, and he wouldn't forget, you know, like, that's one of the things, like, you know, you know, Squid, you, you got enough players coming in and out, some days you, you told the kid, hey, listen, you do these three things for the next month, and I'm I'm going to make sure I get you on the power play, whatever. He didn't forget, he didn't forget that he told you that. Yeah. You know, like, sometimes, again, you get lost in the shuffle. I'm a coach, I get it. Like, sometimes you're communicating with players, and you're trying to, you know, keep it all straight. He didn't forget. And he'd meet you at the door if you did something good. You know, and I, you don't see that. Yeah. You, you watch enough of these games that you don't see that every night either, right? So he'd come over and yeah. give you the Knox good job, good face-off win, good shot block, whatever. It was never a goal. <laughs> you know, like, so it was all the, yeah. all the grunt work he, he had time for. And so I, I like coaches like that. Well, he appreciated I, he, he yelled, that. He, yeah, and if he yelled he at you once in a while, it was it's just because he liked you. It really was. <laughs> Yeah. Well, boys, we uh, we're coming to that time. We've uh, the clock is our enemy, and Todd, we've had a great time and shared some great stories with us and some great uh, thoughts and insights into minor hockey and the playing your professional career. We want to thank you for joining us today. Squid, a final thought before we let Todd go. No, I uh, he played well after I did, so I didn't get to play against him. But uh, I love playing with him in the alumni games because I just <laughs> give him the puck. He's younger, faster. And then I just get open. So <laughs> I can't wait. Hopefully this fall we're getting back to doing that, Todd. Yeah, for sure. I'm looking forward to just, yeah, change it up, getting, right. getting together with all the guys again. That's one of the things, you know, when you do the alumni stuff, it's it's nice to it's nice to see the guys, you know, again and just catch up. And it's just like you're back in the dressing room again, isn't it, Squid? So, yeah, I'm looking forward to playing some games, too. It would be yeah. fun to to get on the ice and raise some money and do all that stuff. But yeah, I said, I haven't talked to you guys so much in the last couple of weeks as you two. You, you guys are pretty lucky. <laughs> I feel like we're blood brothers. So. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for your time and good luck at the hockey school this week, Todd. Anyway, thanks for joining yeah, us. I got, so my, I got my hockey factory hat on. I just spent a week down there. What a place. So I'm looking forward to going back. And, uh, I'm going to be down there for the next few weeks. So it's a good place. Good spot. Thanks for having okay, me. Okay, man. Okay, thank you, Todd. Great. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Todd.